Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Chris Green, an attorney and the executive director of the Brooks McCormick Jr. Animal Law and Policy Program at Harvard Law School about the ag industry's latest attempt to force California to accept pork from pigs in gestation crates into their supermarkets in violation of the wishes of Californians expressed in Prop 12. Wow. That is bananas. This latest industry effort is known as the EATS Act, i.e. the Ending Agricultural Trade Suppression Act. It is currently pending in Congress. And though I know it may feel like this fight to keep those minimal reforms for animals will never end, the fact is it, it probably won't. This industry won't give up and we mustn't either. It is frustrating though, isn't it? This is a great interview. The reason I thought it was really important to interview Chris, who is an old friend of both of ours, uh, uh, is that Harvard did this great report. The author of the report didn't want to do the interview, so Chris said he, he, he would do it. And it's all about how ridiculous this bill is. But, you know, when you think about it, it's really frustrating of how much work, unbelievable amounts of work at a very high level is being put into saving these very, what are really minimal reforms. I mean, it doesn't even apply to all pork. Uh, it just applies to, you know, gestation crates. It doesn't apply to farrowing crates. I'm sure most of you know the difference. Gestation is for pregnant pigs. Farrowing crates are for nursing pigs. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't. it's not like they have a lot of room after that. Like, why do we fight so hard for welfare reforms? Is it worth it? Well, I mean, that depends on who you ask. And in my opinion, that depends on the... I was asking you. Well, okay, no, I'm not a fan of welfare reforms personally, but I genuinely understand why strategically some people choose to work in this direction. I do not at all think that they're making the wrong decision. I just personally wouldn't put my efforts into that and... Uh, Yeah. So that's, you know, that's where I stand on it. I think there are very creative ways of going the liberation approach these days. What about you? Well, I I don't think there are any creative ways. Well, I guess there are some creative ways of going the liberation approach, but that's that's a whole nother area of, of inquiry. I guess I feel about welfare reforms. I feel like A, and this is something you kind of expressed, like, you know, who knows? Like, I certainly don't think they're doing it as any harm. And who knows what's going to to create change? It's so hard to imagine that there's going to be change <laughs> in this unbelievably huge system. So I fully do understand the idea of chipping away, like tiny little bits. And, you know, I guess really a lot of the money in the movement right now is going into welfare reforms because of the money coming from the effective altruism movement and really the cage-free movement and to a lesser extent, the broiler, I hate calling them broilers, but you know, that's what the industry calls them, the broiler chicken welfare. So there's really, really a lot of effort going into this. I, you know, I'd be interested to know whether, and I don't know even know whether they'll talk about it, but but where does this end? Like, what's the next step? All right, say you get the, the chickens out of the battery cages and you get them into cage-free. And cage-free, as we all know, is really bad and really ugly. So what's the next step? They've spent a lot of money getting rid of the cages. You've, you've done a lot of negotiating getting them out of the cages. And let's say you win that. I, you know, I just don't understand how you then get them out completely. But that's not to say that other people don't have a plan. Yeah. You know, I... I I think there's a lot of different 
thoughts going into these these theories of change in the animal movement right now. Yeah. I mean, certainly the industry hates Prop 12. They hate it. I mean, I've never they just really won't give up and they will do anything to avoid having to take these poor benighted animals out of out of these gestation crates. Like part of that may be emotional. Like they're just pissed off that somebody finally confronted them on their bullshit. And, and, but part of it really is like they, they act like it's existential, like it's going to make a huge difference. You know, there's the question of like every welfare reform costs some, some money. Though, you know, we like to pretend, oh, it's not going to cost consumers anything, but it does. So it raises the price of their food. And, and, and then if we can lower the price of alternatives, you know, that's a long term theory. I don't know. Lots to think about. So much going on in the movement, uh, so much more than than used to be the case, that it really does take a lot of thought process to figure out what's the right way. And fortunately, oh, we don't have to do that. We just have to have to report on it. Well, I want to go back to one thing you said a few minutes ago, which you just sort of said as an aside, but I actually think it's kind of important, which is when you when we were talking about our feelings about welfare reforms, you said... I certainly don't know. I don't think it's doing any harm, blah, blah, blah. I think that's what makes you different from other people. I think a lot of people who are liberationists who don't work on welfare reforms in any capacity do think that they do harm. Yeah, and I, that's a huge concern. I, I, I agree it's a huge concern. We don't want to do harm. I guess the way I feel about it is that given where we are and given how few other ways forward we know of, we would want to be sure before we deprived the move. I mean, if we had the power and, you know, these are going to go ahead whether we want to or not, because there's a lot of very, very, very wealthy people who believe in them. But we would want to be sure if we did have the power to stop them, that they did, they weren't going anywhere. And I, you know, I'm far from sure. One of the reasons that I've heard said for that, for that kind of theory that they're bad is that they make people feel better about eating animals. Uh, when you put these welfare reforms in. And I just don't see any evidence that the vast majority of people feel bad at all about eating animals currently. So I don't see how these could make them feel any differently. So that's that's my thinking about it. And it's crazy the the, the size <laughs> of the changes we have to make in the world uh, in order to get animals out of this fucking nightmare. And how hard it is to see the end and and know what's the right route to get there. Uh, of course we don't, you know. So, I, you know, I'm perfectly happy to see people doing what they can and we'll see what happens next. I do talk to Chris about this question a bit. I mean, most of it's about the legislation itself, but we do talk about this a bit. Has your perspective on this changed since we started our hen house 13 and a half years ago? I don't think a lot. I didn't know then and I don't know now what is the best way forward. What about your thoughts on just, you know, change making or like either the tactics or the, you know, best approach or like effective approaches or what should be behind change making for animals? Has any of that shifted? Well, I think it's expanded as, you know, more and more people have come into the movement and people have tried different things. I mean, people people are doing things that never occurred to me. I mean, one is this 
unbelievably huge effort to create welfare reforms, I mean, which is worldwide and very big. The huge thing that I didn't foresee would be the the Good Food Institute kind of theory of change, which is based on the fact that there are all these new foods and they taste just like meat. And they're going to be even, I mean, they really do. They're going through a struggle right now to become more popular, but I, you know, I think that'll work out. And then the cell-based meat, who knew that was going to happen? So I think those those developments changed everything because the possibility that that people will actually stop eating meat just grew exponentially with the invention of those foods. And then there's the climate thing. I mean, the climate is a huge motivator and it's a motivator that allows people to think about making these changes without having to think about the animals. People don't like to think about the animals. I think, I think I've, people really have to be forced to think about the animals for one reason or another. That is one conclusion I've drawn. And and with the motivation of climate, everybody has a reason to at least cut down and you don't have to quit totally. Like you don't, you know, if you're thinking about the animals, you kind of like can't eat any of them because there they are, dead animals who would want to eat them. But if you're just thinking about the climate, you know, you can cut down a lot. And so that's a huge change that's occurred. And, And then the whole DXE thing, I mean, they have a really interesting theory of change. Really fascinating. They don't advocate for veganism, uh, really. They let people make up their own minds about about what they should eat. I mean, the problem with the DXE theory of change, and I consider it a big problem, is that they could go to prison for a really long time for pursuing it. I mean, that's a problem. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. We should get to this interview so I, we can hear Chris talk about this stuff. Yeah, I love that idea. Chris Green is an attorney and the executive director of the Brooks McCormick Jr. Animal Law and Policy Program at Harvard Law School. He is the former chair of the American Bar Association's TIPS Animal Law Committee, as are you, Marianne, and previously was the director of legislative affairs for the Animal Legal Defense Fund, which you were not, Marianne. I've never never worked for the Animal Legal Defense Fund in any capacity. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just making it comparisons to Chris. Chris is blonde. You are brunette. Okay, I'll stop. Chris regularly testifies at legislative hearings on animal protection matters, and he has been quoted on legal issues in dozens of major media outlets. A graduate of Harvard Law School and the University of Illinois, Chris also spent several decades working in the fine arts, film, and music industries, and currently manages an Illinois farm that has remained in his family for 185 consecutive years. In 2022, Chris received the American Bar Association's Award for Excellence in the Advanced of animal law. He will be joining Marianne right after this. Victoria Moran's Main Street Vegan Academy has been training and certifying vegan lifestyle coaches and educators since 2012 and inspiring vegan businesses from bakeries to B&Bs to cowboy boots. The faculty draws from the best and the brightest in the vegan universe. Marianne and I have taught the animal rights and animal law class from the very beginning and will be a part of the upcoming cohort live on Zoom starting September 9th. Check out this unparalleled program at MainStreetVegan.com. And because you're an Our Hen House listener, use the code KINDNESS15 to save 15% on tuition. That's MainStreetVegan.com. And use the code KINDNESS15 with a capital K to save 15% on tuition. 
Welcome to our hen house, Chris. Thank you. It's great to be here. I am thrilled to have you because it's so hard to understand what's going on in Congress. This EATS Act is complicated and difficult to understand, and it's unbelievably important. So we're going to sort it out so that everybody listening and I as well will understand what it is and we'll understand what they're trying to do. We'll understand whether they're going to succeed and we'll understand what we should do about it. I mean, and there are actually loads of things we could talk to you because there's a lot of things that you're working on, but we really wanted to talk about the EATS Act and specifically because the Harvard program I'm going to call it the Harvard program because it's got a really, really long name. But shorthand, the Harvard program recently put out this very comprehensive report on it, very dense. And I believe you were one of the people who worked on the report. But tell us about how the report came about and who worked on it. Sure. I will just start out by giving our full name. We're the Brooks McCormick Jr. Animal Law and Policy Program at Harvard Law School. And we've been around for about eight years. And one of the sort of pillars of what we do is both trying to increase the quantity and quality of academic research in the field. And we do that through various visiting fellows and others. But we also like to have an impact on the policy side of things. And that's where things like this report come in. So uh, the retort, it's looking at what's called the EATS Act, which is the Ending Agricultural Trade Suppression Act. And I will get into the details of that a little bit later. But it's essentially trying to nullify any the, so the state ballot initiatives like Massachusetts Question 3 and California's Prop 12 and several others that previous re- sales restrictions on agricultural products sold within our borders. So... The origins of the EATS Act stretch back to 2008 when I think 63.5% of California voters voted yes on Proposition 2, which was known as the Prevention of Farm Animal Cruelty Act. And that imposed minimum space and confinement requirements for egg-laying hens, veal calves, and mother pigs that were raised in the state. So outlining certain crates like gestation crates, tethering veal, and and battery cages for egg-laying hens. So the problem with that is that it imposed those standards on domestic producers, but then those domestic California egg producers said, well, this isn't really fair because you're allowing lower cost, less humane products from outside the state to flood our market and we're having trouble competing with those. So in 2010, the California legislature passed Assembly Bill 1437, known as the California Egg Law, and that required that all eggs sold in the state as of 2015 had to meet Proposition 2 standards, regardless of whether they were produced in California or outside the state. And so that meant that any producers wishing to continue selling their eggs in California would have to provide hens enough space to stand up, lie down, turn around, and extend their wings without touching their cage or cage mates. And so most of those egg producers at the time did not meet those standards. Coincidentally, at the time, the highest egg producing district in the country was Iowa's fourth congressional district, which was represented by Steve King. So he responded with a, a series of different legislative maneuvers aimed, aimed at nullifying the, the, the California egg law. That kind of ultimately became known as the King Amendment. And this was an amendment to the Farm Bill that he was trying to get this legislation passed. So that would have prohibited state and localities from setting agricultural product standards or conditions in excess of those in effect in the state of production for any goods that are sold in interstate commerce. So basically, it would have meant that all of these eggs produced in Steve King's district would have, in order to be sold in California, which is a huge, huge, huge market, would have to follow the same rules that California producers were forced to comply with. Yeah, basically just leveling the playing field. If they want to sell in California. 
Not if they don't want to sell in California, no worries. Nobody's forcing anybody to do anything here. Exactly. So the King Amendment actually was included in the in 2014 Farm Bill negotiations. The King Amendment was included in two different House passed versions of the Farm Bill, but it was not included in the Senate passed version of the bill. And so after a lot of opposition by Senate Democrats and public criticism, the conference committee ultimately left the King Amendment out of the 2014 Farm Bill. Then in 2015, King repackaged his amendment as a standalone piece of legislation entitled the Protecting Interstate Commerce Act. That legislative session, it went nowhere. It wasn't passed out of the Ag Committee. But then in 2018, another Farm Bill year, the Farm Bill has to be reauthorized every five years. He reintroduced PICA with the eye to again having it folded into the Farm Bill. And again, in 2018, the King Amendment text was included in the House passed version of the bill, but was not included in the Senate passed version. So what happens if you have both chambers, the House and Senate, that have to pass a piece of legislation? And if they don't pass identically worded pieces of that bill, they then go to what's called a conference committee. And that's where basically representatives of the House or representatives of the Senate get together kind of behind closed doors and they do a bunch of horse trading to try and get to some sort of consensus. And then whatever version comes out of that then goes back to both chambers. And sometimes I, I just want to add, like I like I've learned all of my uh, workings of Congress through trying to understand animal legislation, and I was shocked to find out sometimes the things that go on conference committee never even pass either house. They just add stuff in, they take stuff out. It's really the wild west in there. But this was not that wild, was it? It was like it had passed the house, hadn't passed the Senate, and it got left out. Is that right? Well, we don't know. So again, the the, the big concern about conference committee is that it is such a black box. The committee members are named, but that's about it. And so it's really worrisome because you just never know what can get traded away for something else. When we saw that this happening, we did a, a study on the King Amendment. So we hired Ann Linder to come and oversee this project. And we had a whole team of students, folks at several different schools, looking at different laws. We kind of want to let folks know that, you know, regardless of how you feel about the California egg law, that this could have a huge wide swath of unintended consequences. And so Anne and our team then identified literally over 3,200 different state and local laws that would have potentially be nullified under the King Amendment. And so another student of ours, Kelly McGill, she worked a little bit on that. And then that next summer went to work for the Senate Ag Committee. And we've heard from several other folks as well that that report that we put out in 2018 was sort of instrumental in helping get the King Amendment knocked out in conference committee because it just basically said, you know, here's 3,200 reasons why you shouldn't do this. There's so many potential unintended consequences where you don't want to do that. So then moving forward in November 2018, after the King Amendment was knocked out of the Farm Bill, building upon California egg law, California voters then passed what's known as Proposition 12, the Farmed Animal Confinement Initiative. And again, almost exactly the same, 63% voting in favor. I think Prop 2 passed with 63.5% of voter support and Prop 12 passed with, I think, 62.7. So pretty consistent. And so Prop 12 established new minimum requirements on farmers to provide more space for, it kind of further defined the language of Prop 2 where it gave very specific, like the number of square feet required exactly. And it prohibited California businesses. So this is the important part. Not only did it prohibit California in-state producers from using these methods as Prop 2 had, 
But it then extended to what the California legislature passed with the California egg law to all the other uh, products that were covered. So it, and it says specifically, it prohibited California businesses from selling eggs or uncooked pork or veal that came from animals housed in ways that did not meet the requirements. And so again, that just spurred a bunch of different litigation challenges that were unsuccessful and in some legislative attempts to enforce this provision to prevent enforcement of it. I don't know how familiar listeners are with uh, Representative Steve King, but he lost his 2020 primary election. <laughs> yes, going back to Steve King. <laughs> after making some, you know, very racist, anti-Semitic comments. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. He was too racist for the Republicans. Too racist for Iowa Republicans, exactly. And also extremely anti-Semitic as well, comments that he's made. Yeah, he's kind of gone. And as you said, now California actually passed a law by ballot initiative that makes this apply to eggs, pork, and and veal, certain types of eggs, pork, and veal. Yeah. And clearly the California voters want this. And Steve King is gone. So, and then they took it to the Supreme Court. And as most of our listeners know, they lost, right? Well, yeah. So just quickly, though, with Steve King gone, other legislators were kind of taking up his mantle to sort of fight against these on the legislative front. And they introduced, they called it the Exposing Agricultural Trade Suppression Act. And so we had Kelsey Eberly, who formerly was at the Animal Legal Defense Fund. She joined us last summer for three months to do a report about the ESAC kind of update and lenders report on the King Amendment. But then right after Kelsey showed up to work on this, the Supreme Court granted cert in the pork producers case challenging Prop 12. Now, every court that had looked at this issue has basically said, get out of town. There's no constitutional question here. So this is not only true with California's egg law and with Prop 12, but also with California's statewide ban on sale of foie gras. Every court that has looked at this has said there, there is no problem. That's why everyone was just completely shocked that the Supreme Court took this case. And given this current court's willingness to kind of move beyond longstanding existing precedent, it was very worrisome. So Kelsey then pivoted to do a major report on just that litigation and giving a host of potential effects because it have got much more wide-ranging effects if the Supreme Court had decided that way, including environmental laws and things like that. Yeah, I think that the pork industry and probably others as well, but the pork industry seems to be really the ones on the big charge right now. They really thought that this was taken care of. They weren't going to need a new law, that they were going to win in the Supreme Court, and that the Supreme Court would find that, no, California can't do this. And they passed, you know, I mean, Prop 12 was passed in 2018. Massachusetts Question 3 was passed in 2016. You know, they've had five years to comply with this law. And then pork producers, instead of choosing to just like follow the law, have just kept betting the farm literally on the fact that they would win in court, which was surprising because they haven't won any other cases. And now that they've lost in court just this past May of 2023, as you said, the Supreme Court's sided with the state of California and upheld Prop 12. Now, people talk about that being a 5-4 decision, but actually on the core question of whether California's Prop 12 is constitutional and whether states have the ability to regulate for their own health, safety, and welfare, it was nine zip, not one single, even though there's a whole myriad. We cannot go into that vote because it's very complicated who voted for what. But your point is well taken. Yeah, just the fact that there are a lot of different dissents and concurrences. But you know, the core, what kind of gets lost in all that shuffle is that on the core issue, it was actually a nine zero decision that California does have 
the ability to regulate its own health, safety, and welfare. And so now as a result of that, you know, the timing almost couldn't have been worse because of the Supreme Court decision in National Pork Producers case, because this happens to be a farm bill year. So as I said, the farm bill has to be reauthorized every five years. And it typically never happens on schedule. It's supposed to be by the end of September, but usually it's sort of the racing to get it done by December 31st when the actual funding expires. So yeah, so as a result, lawmakers have again in June reintroduced a kind of updated version of the King Amendment, which yeah. is called the Ending Agricultural Trade Suppression Act or ETS Act. And, you know, while the text has sort of evolved from its progression to the King Amendment to its current form, the central aim remains exactly the same, to federally block Prop 12 and similar state and local measures that are uh, focused on animal protection for, you know, protection for farmed animals. But we prepared this additional report now. Kelly McGill, an alumnus of the school who went on to work for the Vermont legislature, and then she worked for the Good Food Institute, doing policy work for them for a while, and also has done some work for the Plant-Based Foods Initiative. She is the lead author on the report. And also Kelsey Eberly, again, building on the work of, of Ann Linder and her 2018 report, and also Kelsey Eberly and some of the work that she had done on our Chop 12 report. So again, now, even with the narrow, the language has been narrowed slightly, which we can get into, but even with the narrow language, we still identified over 1,000 state and local laws and regulations that could potentially be nullified or overruled federally under the ETS Act. So that should give great pause to any legislators who think that it might benefit folks. In- yeah, I didn't realize that this was narrower language. I'm not as familiar with the history as you are. Because I thought the language in this one was pretty insane. It's, it's completely insane. Well, we'll get into some of it, and we don't have to get into detail on all of it. But the language, I, nobody would know what this law means. I mean, it's impossible to know, really, what a lot of it means. And I just want to point out something. Like, people know that California's law was upheld by the Supreme Court. And they might be wondering now, well, if, if that law was constitutional, then how can Congress undermine it? But it's constitutional under the Commerce Clause. And, you know, the Commerce Clause limits what states can do. And the court found that, you know, the Commerce Clause is not violated by what California did here. But the Commerce Clause doesn't really limit what the federal government can do. The federal government can pass laws that regulate commerce. I mean, that's what the Commerce Clause is all about. So it's a whole different constitutional issue. Just because what California did was constitutional, and is fine doesn't mean that the federal government Congress can't come in and with certain limitations, which we'll go into, just kind of rip the the rug out from under California's feet and say, no, we're making all of the rules. Though it's a lot more complicated than that, I know. And we'll go into that. Sometimes that's something I get confused about. So I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah. It's, I can talk a little bit about that if you like. Yeah, sure. If you have something to add, please do. Yeah. So under long-standing principles of federalism, state and local governments are free to regulate agricultural products and production, except in ways that are preempted, what we call preempted by federal law, or if they unlawfully discriminate against out-of-state production, or if they unduly burden trade. While Congress does have the power to regulate interests, so the king of finer point on what you said, the Commerce Clause of Article 1 and Supremacy Clause of Article 6 of the Constitution does give Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce, but the right of states to regulate their own markets has been inferred from their 10th Amendment powers, and their authority to do that has been recognized even in cases where the state laws do have substantial effects on interstate commerce. 
I think James Madison said, powers delegated by the proposed constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain to the state governments are numerous and indefinite. So the powers reserved to the several states will extend to all the optics which in the ordinary course of affairs concern the lives, liberties, and properties of the people and the internal order, improvement, and prosperity of the state. So, you know, they're basically saying the federal government does have the right to do things, but anything that it doesn't have the right to do is reserved to the states. And so traditionally, states have enjoyed really broad authority to legislate for the health, safety, and welfare and morals of their citizens. But where state legislature favors local interests at the extent of -of out-of-state parties or disproportionately interferes with interstate trade, that law may be challenged under what's known as the Dormant Commerce Clause. Now, there's several folks out there, scholars, including the dean of Harvard Law School, John Manning, who said that the Dormant, Dormant Commerce Clause doesn't exist, like it's written nowhere in the Constitution. But it's something that the Supreme Court heads courts have read into the Constitution and the Dormant Commerce Clause jurisprudence holds that states may not unduly restrict interstate commerce, even in areas where Congress hasn't acted. So that's basically to protect against protectionism. Yeah, we don't want to have the states passing a lot of laws that just say, like in New York, you can only buy things that are made in New York and you can't buy things that are made in New Jersey. Like they wanted the country to have like a, a unified commercial system so that it would work. So that's the basic gist of it. But they've tried to spin it into something much bigger than that to try to keep states from actually protecting the animals within their borders. Totally. And when an alleged violation of the Dormant Commerce Clause does occur, courts then must kind of consider the interests of the state in passing the the law and determine whether that state law places on what's called an unreasonable burden on interstate commerce. So even when there is a burden on interstate commerce, often it's allowed, these, these laws are allowed to stand. But it's just, it goes to this balancing test. And that was all the nitty gritty of the Supreme Court decision was over that proposed balancing. And I know there are reasons to believe, which you alluded to some of the provisions involved, why this law would be unconstitutional too. But but since that really gets us into the weeds, I'd like to talk a little bit more just about why the law is so unbelievably unclear. Mm-hmm. Uh, like some yeah. of the language in there is just crazy. Like, Like, I don't know what it means. No court could look at this and say that they understand what it means. The legislative history probably doesn't define what it means. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of things that this law very well might do? I know that your report went into a lot of detail about all of the crazy results that could arguably be enforced by this law. And it's not just about farmed animals. No. And so we're saying that the ETEC proposes sort of a race to the bottom for state and local regulation of agricultural products, not only raising serious constitutional concerns, but also threatening states' rights, consumer safety, and even farmers' livelihood. I said, at minimum, the ETEC could overturn more than a thousand state and local laws and regulations, the majority of which aren't even known or identified. And we did our best to dig out as many of them as we could, but no one really knows. Can I just ask a question? Because you mentioned that term agricultural products. Um, yeah. Like, that's not a defined term, right? Like, what the hell does that mean? Well, no, it actually is. The problem is that there are t- some terms in there that are not defined. So it says the, the actual letter of the law says, so with the prohibition, it says the government of a state or a unit of local government within a state shall not impose a standard or condition on the pre-harvest production of any agricultural products sold or offered for sale in interstate commerce if that production incurs in another state and the standard of condition is in addition to the standards of conditions applicable under federal law or the state of production. 
All right, tell us what that means, because I'm a lawyer and my, my eyes glaze over when somebody reads a statute to me. So the problem is that it says a state shall not impose a standard or condition on the pre-harvest production. So the term standard is not defined anywhere, but it doesn't say regulation. It says a standard or condition. Neither of those terms are defined anywhere in the law. So it's going to fall to the courts to try and figure out what exactly a standard condition even is whenever there's a challenge. Also, it says a standard or condition on the pre-harvest production. Nowhere is pre-harvest production defined anywhere in federal law currently. So that's another term that's going to have to be fought out in the courts. However, they say pre-harvest production of any agricultural products. Now, agricultural products is defined. So the way that they define agricultural products, it says the very first line says in this section, the term agricultural products has a meaning given to the term in section two in a section of the Agricultural Marketing Act of 1946. So you're talking about a a definition that's whatever, 70 some years old, and it is so broadly expansive. So the way that the agricultural product is defined is so broad. So here's what that definition says. Again, from 1946, it says the term agricultural products includes agricultural, horticulture, viticultural, dairy products, livestock and poultry, bees, forest products, fish and shellfish, and any products thereof including processed and manufactured products and any and all products raised or produced on farms. Well, I mean, forest products, does that mean anything made of wood is covered? Yeah. I mean, it just said, like, you could interpret that statute to mean virtually anything. Because it said any products thereof. So any product of a forest product or, again, all products produced or raised on farms. So that could mean anything. I mean, you right. could like you could make cars. You could have a car factory on a farm, or you could be growing drugs on farms. And so there you go. So you have this massive, massive, but it gets worse. Okay. So this is this is you know as broad and crazy. You've got three really key terms: standard condition and pre-harvest production, completely undefined. And then you have the fourth really key term defined so broadly as to include everything under the sun. That's worrisome enough, but it gets worse. (laughs) So that's section two. So then at the bottom of section two of this law, again, I'm going to read you the language again, and then I'll dissect it. They have what's called a rule of construction, where they sort of say, okay, well, here's a sort of safety net for this law. So first they're saying, basically, again, in layman's terms, that a state can't pass any sort of rules or regulations on an agricultural product or can't enforce it if their state standard is stronger than either federal law or stronger than the law of the state in which that agricultural product was produced. That's a sort of bare bone. So again, in terms of Prop 12, they're saying because there is no federal law that governs confinement of farmed animals and because Iowa doesn't have any law that governs the confinement of farmed animals, California is not allowed to go beyond the state of production and the federal law in, in itself passing law to confine farm animals. So basically, we're talking about the lowest common denominator, like whatever Iowa says you can do to pigs, we all have to say you can do to pigs. But it gets worse. So then they put this rule of construction in that says, and I'll quote, if no standards or conditions are applicable to the production of an agricultural product pursuant to federal law or the laws of a state or locality in which the production occurs, that lack of standards and conditions shall be deemed to be the standards and conditions applicable to the production of that agricultural product. So 
basically they're saying we are freezing all legislation in time as of 2023. And we're, if there's a regulatory void right now that currently exists, we're etching that regulatory void into permanent law. So if there is no standard on for an agricultural product at the federal level, which there isn't, I mean, for the care of animals, there just aren't any. For the care of animals, but anything, this can apply to any yeah. agricultural product that's sold in interstate commerce. So if we later find out that there's some like agricultural product that has like negative impacts or is, is harmful in some way, such as a new drug, you know, folks are always finding different plants to ingest, uh, such as like salvia and kratom and things like that, that the federal government still has not banned. Several states have banned those drugs, but as long as the federal government doesn't ban it, and at least one state that produces that product doesn't ban it, that one state can go sue under the EATS Act, sue all the other states that do ban it and force them to legalize these products. So it was already sort of pretty bad in, in the main section there of saying that the states can't pass laws that are stronger. But now they're saying, if there are no laws on a particular subject, that's it. No laws can ever be passed governing that agricultural product. It's really, really freaky. But it gets even better because then they have section three where they create a federal cause of action to challenge state regulation of interstate commerce. So they basically include what's called a citizen suit provision. Here, again, they define agricultural products, but then I, I'm not going to read this entire thing because it, it gets really wordy. But the ETEC includes this broad citizen supervision that authorizes any person affected by a regulation governing, quote, any aspect of one or more agricultural products that are sold in interstate commerce and allow these citizens to bring suit to block that regulation and to seek an award of monetary damages against the state or local government enforcing that regulation. So this citizen supervision raises significant concerns related to state sovereign immunity, protected by the 11th Amendment. And so, again, it includes consumer. It says, you know, a producer, transporter, distributor, consumer, laborer, trade association, federal government, state government, anyone in consumer pretty much includes every single U.S. citizen. So any citizen that has a problem with any regulation of any agricultural product can ensue to have that regulation stopped or overturned. But basically, the ones who are going to sue is going to be industries. And they will have standing to sue because, I mean, because there's more complications about who can sue, too. And it's going to allow any industry that is allowed to do anything in one particular state to sue all the other states. Is that right? But also individuals. So, again, you know, again, any consumer who's affected by this regulation, there's Article 3 standing issues that we point out. But the way the law is currently written, I, I mean... We saw this as Prop 12, where you had, I think, four or five separate federal lawsuits challenging Prop 12, all by different producers groups. I mean, that's usually kind of frowned upon. I mean, if the animal protection art movement was filing multiple lawsuits over the same thing, they would sort of get griped at for reform shopping or whatever. But yeah, it's just so the other one was very specific about standard condition on agriculture products. Here they're saying, and again, this section uses the term regulation. It doesn't use standard or condition. And so there's also kind of concerns about, well, wait a minute. Normally, when you have a citizen suit provision, it specifically relates back to the language that it's included in the law. It specifically relates back to the particular language of that law. So like, say, if you violate what we lay out in section two, if someone violates that, other people can sue to enforce that. But here, they're actually kind of 
creating a much broader scope under which people can sue. So it's a little clandestine and nefarious, but courts are, again, going to have a real problem with that because, again, the language is different. Section two says standard conditions. Section three just says regulation. Like, which is it? And is it the case that it only applies to violations of section two where there's a pre-harvest condition and it's stronger than federal law or stronger than the local production law? All right, I'm getting lost. Basically, the bottom line is the citizen supervision, as written, it doesn't just apply to violations of the sort of standard of condition on pre-harvest production, where it's a, a state law, like California law is stronger than either federal or Iowa law. This says any regulation of any agricultural product, again, sold in interstate commerce. So another thing we pointed out, is it that particular product that's sold in interstate commerce or that type of product that's sold in interstate commerce? So we give the example, you could have a Florida orange grower that doesn't really like Florida's own regulations on growing oranges. So you could say, well, because oranges are themselves sold in interstate commerce, that Florida orange grower could actually sue the state of Florida to challenge Florida's uh, regulations on growing oranges. It's a real problem. What you're saying, and the report is written, which goes into this in extraordinary and careful detail says that this proposed legislation is crazy. It's just causing unbelievably huge problems. It's very poorly written. It's not carefully drawn. It's probably going to create more problems for agriculture than it, it's saving. But getting back to the real reason that they wanted to pass it, getting right back to the pigs in California okay. who can't be kept in gestation crates, can they fix this? Can they refine it? Or even if they fixed it to just apply to the problem that they are trying to address, that, that animal activists have gotten the citizens of California to impose these very minor regulations on what you can do to pigs and chickens and calves. Like, it's still a disaster, right? I mean, the industry likes to say that California is trying to impose its laws on other states, but it's not. California should be allowed, even if it's just that narrow issue, to pass laws that protect the pigs in, in, that, that are being eaten in California, right? Yeah. It's, and that are being sold in California. And so there was talk about the EATS Act being narrowed just because of all these things we point out that it could apply to like, you know, narcotics. It could apply to, you know, food safety requirements, all these things. So can they fix it? I guess that's my question. Can they fix it? They can try to fix it, even if they just narrowed it to, to sort of like, you know, pork or something. Interestingly, just as an aside, you know, the egg producers several years ago, they'd agreed with the Humane Society of the United States on language to do a nationwide battery cage ban. And they agreed they were introducing the legislation in Congress. And it was actually the pork producers, something that didn't even affect them, but they just didn't like the fact that there would be a national standard for caging hens. And the national pork producers, the ones who went and killed it. Yeah, the pork producers are definitely like the top of the hill of evil in my mind. <laughs> and you have been doing this for a long time. So you remember like all of these different attempts yeah. to protect farm animals. And I think, and just while we're talking about it, that was at the federal level. And the, the animal rights movement used to think that the goal was to get something passed at the federal level to protect animals. And after a while of things like that, the pork producers putting the kibosh on it, that's how we ended up going state by state. And now they're trying to prevent us from doing that. And Massachusetts is a classic example. So I'll, I'll explain a little bit about why we have these ballot initiatives. So even in states, blue states, where it's clear that voters want this, I think it's something like 92% of Americans say that animals raised for food should not endure any cruelty or suffering, 
right? You think, oh man, yeah, yeah. 98% support like, for this. Like what the hell is going on? Yeah, so that should be pretty easy to pass from a legislative point of view because, you know, this is what the majority of Americans want. But as you and David Wilson have pointed out in all your great Beyond the Law articles you work, the exact opposite is true. That farmed animals are completely unprotected for the vast majority of their lives. They're, they're categorically exempted from the Federal Animal Welfare Act. I think something like 27 states categorically exempt farmed animals from their state anti-cruelty laws. So you can do anything to farmed animals that you want, beat them with hammers, whatever. They only finally get covered by federal law when the truck that they're being transported on pulls into the line, the queue at the slaughterhouse. Up until then, it's carte blanche. So in Massachusetts, animal advocates had polling showing that 80% of Massachusetts voters felt that farmed animals should not be confined in an extreme and cruel manner. So battery cages for hens, gestation crates for pigs. And just to explain, we haven't really defined any of this stuff, but a gestation crate is basically this cage that is pretty much almost no bigger than the, the animal itself. Then this mother pig, she can't oftentimes even lie down because she gains weight while she's pregnant and she becomes kind of trapped in here. Obviously, you certainly can't turn around. So these gestation crates, people just feel that it's cruel and that they, and, and they spend their entire pregnancies in them. And because they are sort of constantly bred, these mother pigs end up spending the majority of lives in, in these crates where their entire life they're immobilized and they've got nothing to do but just bite the bars of this crate in frustration. In Massachusetts, we had, again, we had polling showing that 80% of voters wanted to make sure that those methods couldn't be used. And each year, year after year, I think for like seven or eight years, they tried to get a bill passed through the Massachusetts legislature saying you can't use these methods anymore in Massachusetts. However, in order to get to the overall chambers, you have to go through a, a, an agriculture committee. In, in every state legislature and even in the federal government, you usually have to go through an agriculture committee first. Most state agriculture committees are staffed by folks who either represent rural districts or that have ties to agriculture industry. And so even in a very blue state like Massachusetts, where you have like polling showing 80% of voters want this, year after year after year for seven or eight years straight, you just couldn't even get this bill yeah. passed, the Agriculture Committee. So finally, animal advocates, okay, okay, fine. We'll just go around you. And I think it's like 24 states or 26 states have the ability to do what's called a, a public yeah. ballot initiative, where you can gather enough signatures, put it on the ballot, and then you can engage in direct democracy where, where voters themselves decide on this issue. And so that passed in 2016. And guess what the number was? 77.7% of the vote, almost exactly what the polling was showing at 8%. And so the same thing happened in California. And that's one fundamental thing people should focus on with the EATS Act is that it's really fundamentally un-American and anti-democratic. You're going to have the federal government coming in yeah. and overruling the will of the vast majority of California voters. That seems just really shocking to me. Yeah, that's why they love to characterize it as California putting rules on what Iowa farmers can do. But as you pointed out before, it's not putting any rules on what Iowa farmers can do because Iowa farmers don't have to sell anything in California. They're required to sell things in California. And to me, it's just a free market issue. You know, like those companies. Yeah, everybody that, believes in the free market until like, you know, they don't. Yeah. But I mean, to me, you know, so a free market issue. So those producers in Iowa or wherever who decide, you know what, it's worth us spending the extra money to give these animals slightly bigger cages in order to have access to the California market. We'll do so. Those that don't think it's worth doing it won't. Like 
nobody's forcing anybody to do something. It's just like, if you want to participate in the market, you have to meet the standards that apply to all producers who sell in that market. So I were pork producers who don't want to sell in California. Great. Go sell your pork in New York. Go sell your pork in Florida. Go sell your pork wherever, you know? Yeah. Places where they don't have ballot initiatives and they, they can't get these laws passed because places where they, they do have ballot initiatives, these laws get passed. A lot of them have been passed when people are allowed to decide. What's interesting and the, the industry points out, like people don't make this decision on, on their own. Like when you label pork in the in the grocery store, crate free or humanely raised, like 80% of the people don't go and buy it. And I think it makes total sense. It may not make sense from a vegan point of view, like boy, personal boycott, but people think, well, if I don't buy it, that's not going to change anything. When they are allowed to go to the ballot box and say, should these rules be applied to everybody? By overwhelming majority, they say, yeah, I'm happy to pay more. I'm happy to do what has to be done. Because this will make a real difference if everybody has to buy it. So I think it makes total sense that ballot initiatives succeed where just labeling pork is never going to have the same kind of impact. These ballot initiatives aren't something that like just snuck by the industry. I mean, they spent <laughs> millions and millions and yeah. millions of dollars on advertising yeah. campaigns in Massachusetts and in California opposing them. And they lost. And even with all the advertising, yeah. they still lost those fights and these pieces of legislation passed. The other lie that keeps getting told here is that you'll hear a lot of the sponsors of the ETAC and co-sponsors and industry saying that California having this requirement is going to raise the price of pork for everyone in the United States. That's just not true. It, it's only <laughs> going to raise the price of pork in California. But again, there's millions of dollars on advertising spent opposing Proposition 12 and Prop 2. And the big argument they were saying is that this is going to raise the price of pork in California. And fully knowing that with this deluge of advertising, California's voters still overwhelmingly, as you just pointed out, yeah. chose to impose this standard on themselves. And so I've yet to find anyone to explain to me how California having this requirement, if you've got a, a consumer in Florida that's buying pork that's raised with gestation crates that's made in North Carolina, how was their price of pork affected at all by what happens in California? I mean, it's just, it's not. It's just, again, it's something pithy and gets everyone wild up, but it's just sort of not true. Yeah, no, it's very hard to believe it's true. But, but back to your question about, can they fix this? Even if they do narrow it only to pork, there's still some kind of serious constitutionality issues with the bill. Like even if you narrow the scope, this could get into a little bit of nitty gritty on the legal thing, but I'll just quickly say that there's what's called a 10th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. It provides that, you know, any power is not delegated to the federal government by the Constitution or not prohibited to the states are reserved to the states. And so it says there's this doctrine called the anti-commandeering doctrine, which holds that Congress cannot compel or forbid states from doing something. Now, Congress can displace state legislation by enacting preemptive federal law, but it may not directly control state government or its officials. So, for example, say that you have a kind of patchwork of laws related to anything. In this case, let's say pork production. The, the federal government could come in and said, you know what? It's kind of too confusing with industry having to kind of comply with like 10 different state standards. The federal government can come in and pass a law that instead is a federal standard and that would preempt those state laws. However, in this instance, they're talking about there is no federal law that does so. 
And so they're basically just saying to states that you can't, even if there is no preemptive federal law. So you're basically commandeering, ordering the states not to do something. That's really interesting. I, you know, I've never come across that because who tries to pull the nonsense that the meat industry tries to pull? But that's really interesting. Like they're trying to actually preempt with nothing. I mean, the federal government can say you can't have any laws, even though we're not passing one either. And that's just not just not kosher, you're saying. And the law is very clear on this. Like, you know, just there was a recent case, Mercy versus the NCAA in 2018, that made clear that federal laws similar to this violate this anti-commandeering doctrine. Yeah. And said that the court affirmed that all legislative power not granted Congress by the Constitution is reserved for the states. In, in Murphy, the court very specifically on point further clarified that the anti-commandeering doctrine extends to congressional prohib- prohibitions on state action. And the court found no distinction between you know, ordering states to act and prohibiting from acting because both offend what they call the basic principle that Congress cannot issue direct orders to state legislatures. So that's that's one yeah. issue here. You know what? Uh, let me just let, let me just add something because something that, that occurred yeah. to me that that the industry could, if it wanted to, go to Congress. I mean, the industry has enormous power in Congress, and it could say, "We want Congress to pass laws regulating what you can do to pigs," and they don't want to do that because that would really bring attention to what they do to pigs. Well, and not just that, but. The status quo benison. Currently, there is no federal law related to pig, raising pigs, and that's what they want to enshrine forever. That's why you've got that rule of construction. They don't want to go there and say, what we're doing is great. Let's just get it enacted into law. They don't want to do that because they know what they're doing is a fucking nightmare. And, and they want zero law. What they want is zero regulation. And that's currently what they have at the federal level. And through this rule of construction of the ETAC, that's what they want to chisel into granite for the rest of time. There is one other constitutional kind of problem. All right. That one was really interesting. So I'm going to let you go into the second one. <laughs> uh, well, so that was the 10th Amendment. There's also an 11th Amendment concern because so the 11th Amendment to the Constitution prevents private citizens in one state from bringing lawsuits directly against another state in federal court. The uh, Supreme Court has interpreted this 11th Amendment to extend the same protection to states for claims brought directly by their own citizens. So together, this doctrine is known to what's called like state sovereign immunity. And section three, that citizen supervision that we mentioned, it t- attempts to waive the right of states not to be sued without their consent by private en- entities. And so it would also create liability for state and local officials. There are caveats to state sovereign immunity. So it doesn't extend to like other states. So one state can sue another state and the federal government can also sue states, but Private individuals are not allowed to sue states, technically, under the 11th Amendment. I didn't even know that. Yeah. And so this is exactly what the citizen supervision of the ETAC does. It completely throws throws that out the window. It just seems so irresponsibly written, this law. Like, these are not serious people. I don't know. Like, they weren't serious about writing this law. They just were, it's like crazy. And then they figure, well, pass it and somebody else will work it out. I think they were very serious about it. I think they knew exactly what they were doing and just trying to sneak all this stuff in. I mean, you know, one thing that I didn't mention with the citizen supervision is that typically for, you know, 100 plus years, the jurisprudence on seeking an injunction. So an injunction is if you, someone is affected by a law, they don't like it or, or a court decision, they will seek an injunction. They'll seek to have the state law or the whatever law put on hold while they sue against it. So you know, it often takes three to four years for a, a lawsuit to work its way through the courts. But if you allow a law to go into effect, 
that might have a problem to say it's even, you know, you can have it range from like abortion bans to, to anything. So because that law could have a significant effect during that time, courts allow you to get an injunction and just sort of prevent that law from being enforced while the courts determine whether it's constitutional or not. So in this case, so typically, if someone wants to challenge a law and, and get an injunction, they have to prove that they will suffer irreparable harm if the law goes into to effect and also prove that they are likely to prevail at trial, saying, not only do we not like this, not only will we have you know severe impacts, but we can show you with all this evidence that once this does go to trial, we're more likely than not to win. So if it, if a someone moving party meets all of those requirements, then the court can issue an injunction. With the ESAC, it turns all that completely on its head and reverses these longstanding presumptions. So this would actually go do the exact opposite. And so when any consumer in the country wants to challenge any agriculture, any regulation of any agricultural product, the burden then goes onto the state. So the state then has to prove that they would suffer in irreparable harm. And the state has to prove that it would prevail at trial in order to prevent the injunction. Absolutely insane. It's insane. It's completely insane. I've never heard of anything, anything like that. It goes counter to all, all law regarding injunction. I mean, just like, again, just the same by fiat, we're just going to pass this law and completely reverse, you know, decades and decades and decades and decades of jurisprudence. I mean, states would never be able to to defend their own policies. They just have to well, give up, you know, not going in any way, not going to the lowest common denominator on all of these different, it's, this is a crazy law. And again, just that lowest common denominator point, you know, as long as one state has very low or zero regulation and there is no federal law on something, that one state, that lack of regulation becomes the law of the land. Because they, they can go invalidate every other state law. Yeah, it's like with apologies to those in that state, we're all going to be Mississippi. I mean, it's the lowest amount of regulation. And it's also, you know, there's a question of the statute of limitations. The way it's written, it's not clear. It says a 10-year statute of limitations. What that means is that, you know, someone inf- affected by the law has up to 10 years to decide whether they want to sue to invalidate it. But it's not clear whether that's 10 years from the law being passed or 10 years from when they were affected by it. So you can have a law that was passed decades ago, one of these thousand different laws that we identified. And if you're affected by it in 2023 and the law was passed, like say in 1970, you could still sue to go and validate that law because within 10 years of you being affected by it. That's insane. The whole thing is insane. (laughs) All right. We can't, I don't want to keep going into how insane it is because I think people have the gist. But I do have one more question, even though we've gone for a long time and I've kept you for a long time. But you know, Our listeners are vegan animal rights people, and I think probably everyone listening can agree that the improvements to the lives of pigs and chickens and calves that are imposed by Prop 12, although we've been touting them and defending them in this interview, they're minimal. I mean, these animals are not living a good life once these, these, they're very, very minimal. They're, They're prohibiting the worst of the worst confinement. So assuming that most of our listeners agree that this is not all that we should be doing for animals. Why is this nevertheless important to defend? Well, it's important for several reasons. Like, yes, you know, it's a slightly bigger cage, but that difference for that animal is everything. So on an individual level. Right. It's all, it's all we can do for them. So we should at least do that. People describe the difference between sort of being in a, for a hen, being a battery cage versus an open situation as 
you know, the difference between stuck in an elevator with 11 people or being on the general floor of a Metallica show, you know, <laughs> neither one's ideal. I'm sorry. You know, I'm you're laughing. still like not completely, but, but at least in the latter, you have the autonomy to move away from others that you don't like or to go find a corner to move around. I think every human would definitely choose the latter between those, you know, being stuck in an elevator with 10 other people for their entire lives. You know, they would definitely choose the, oh, the yeah. you know, being in the mosh pit of Metallica show. Uh, and the same thing with, with pigs. You know, 24 square feet doesn't sound like that much more, but if that allows that pig to actually lie down during her life or maybe even turn around, I mean, that is everything to that animal. So you can kind of, you know, there's sort of concerns about welfare things, but yes, this is incremental change, but for those animals impacted, it's massively incremental. We should never say these animals are living an okay life, but it is ridiculous to not recognize that better is better than worse. And then put it this way. If it wasn't such a big deal, why would the pork industry be fighting it so much? You know, if this wasn't any great change, why would they be fighting so hard? They know that it's important. Yeah. Um, I am I am actually a little mystified as why they're fighting it as hard as they can. To me, it seems like the writing's on the wall, but, you know, they're just a bunch of assholes, so. Your lords, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> Something that we really didn't cover, that the industry is not unanimous on this, and there are people, even within the pork industry, who recognize that this is a mess. And there's some pork producers that are really pissed because, again, Prop 12 was passed in 2018. Question three, in Massachusetts passed in 2016. So again, they've had all these years. And so some of the producers have been doing it right because they know that they're not going to be able to completely retool all of their facilities overnight. So they've been spending the past five years being a bunch of capital investment in giving these larger cages so they comply with Prop 12. And if all of a sudden the ETSAC comes in and, and, and erases Prop 12, then you've got all these producers who spent all this money for nothing, and that puts them at a competitive disadvantage. Rewarding the ones who have just ignored the coming legal requirements. 100%. But one, one last thing, if I, could, if I could, the thing that is, was kind of most surprising, one of the surprising things to us, and I think will be very surprising to the pork industry themselves, is that some of the most important laws that could be challenged under the ETSAC were put in place specifically to protect animal agriculture producers, like pork producers and chicken producers. So you've got all these state laws, and we identify several specifically in Iowa that are intended to prevent the transfer and spread of zoonotic and infectious diseases. Yeah. Um, these include everything from avian influenza to African swine fever, you know, a whole bunch of different things. So if someone wants to bring a truckload of pigs into Iowa, you know, there's all these very specific inspection requirements and importation requirements. I mean, we're currently experiencing the most severe outbreak of highly pathogenic avian influenza. You know, it's already like 47 states and over 58 million birds have been affected. You know, it has like a 90% mortality rate. And so someone who actually wants to bring chickens into Iowa, technically, because those are live animals, that's a pre-harvest standard condition. So yeah. those laws could be totally challenged. Iowa yeah. has other laws on, on the, the sanitation requirements for trucks that are transporting livestock into or through the state. Again, that's a pre-harvest standard of condition. Those could all be challenged under the EATS Act. So while these politicians and you know the Iowa delegation think that they're trying to help out the pork industry by saving them a little bit of money from having to make slightly bigger cages, in the process, they're likely jeopardizing, exposing them to you know, bankrupting losses if one of these infectious diseases should affect their farm. I mean, it's so incredibly short-sighted. I know. It's, it's remarkably stupid, stupid legislation. That does not mean that it's not going to pass. So how can people help fight it? 
just tell people what they should do. And not just fight it being enacted as it is, but also make sure that they, you can't fix this. Don't clean it up. It's just, even if it, even if you clean it up to justify to um, things like Prop 12, it's not okay. So how would people make that clear? Just make it clear by the, the thing about this, because it is at the federal level and is in both chambers, you know, every single American out there can contact their congressional representatives in, in both the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate and just make their voices heard. Tell them we will yeah. not tolerate having the EATS Act included in the Farm Bill. That is the whole big fight right now. They know this legislation could never pass on its own. When it was tried by Steve, even Steve King, it didn't even make it out of the Ag Committee itself. So the only way they can hope to try and slip something by the American people is to fold it into the Farm Bill. It was heartening that in both the House and Senate version of the EATS Act, there was not one Democrat that signed on as a co-sponsor. There also was not one Republican member of either the House or Senate Ag Committees that signed on as co-sponsors. We are told that the chair of the House Ag Committee is very supportive of it, but traditionally they don't sign on to as co-sponsors. But yes, every single person who's listening to this should call their congressional representatives immediately. You can easily go find that information out who they are. Don't send them an email. Just give them a phone call. Call their office and saying, I am absolutely opposed to the ETH Act being included in the Farm Bill. This is a state's rights issue. All states should have the right to set their own health, safety, and welfare laws, period. Yeah, and, and as you pointed out, as you were talking about it, it occurred to me, since all these compromises get made in the committee conference after committee. the Farm Bill, in conference committee, they could totally fix it a little bit, you know, make it like not so crazy and still impose it on, on you know, pigs and chickens and, and uh so, or, or maybe not even fix it. They may, it may just be case that like there's some sacred issues for Democrats. You know, the Republicans are launching this full scale assault, trying to roll back, you know, SNAP requirements and you know uh, public assistance for for food. That oh, it may be the Republicans asked for fifty things, and in order to you know get rid of some of them, Democrats trade trade it away, and we have no control over that. People have to make themselves heard on this because. Whether it gets in the farm, you know, probably, as you say, it probably won't be independent legislation, but if it gets in the farm bill, no matter what, even if it gets amended, still a complete disaster yeah. for the only route this movement has ever found to pass laws protecting these animals, even just a little bit. And yeah. if we lose this, it's like there's just no, there's no way left. And again, they're, they're not only overturning states, but they were kind of basically overturning, you know, what the Supreme Court just said was a very valid exercise of state regulation. So again, the big concern is trying to keep it out of that. It's, it's unlikely to make it into the Senate version. So the big push is just to try and keep it out of the House version of the Farm Bill in the right. first place. So everybody... So you have to write to your congressperson. And for those people who don't really think like, oh, I'm just one person, what's the big deal? Call... Because, I, you know, I was the, the legislative director of the Animal Legal Defense Fund prior to coming to Harvard eight years ago, coming back to, to get the program built with Kristen. If a legislative office gets like four or five calls on something, like eyebrows start to get raised. If a mm -hmm. legislative office, they say if they receive 10 phone calls on something, it's like five alarm fire, drop everything. We need to deal with this because so few people engage in the legislative process. 
And this is all going to go on behind closed doors. It's not going to be an open vote where people's vote. I mean, if it does go to the conference committee. Yeah. So it's very, very important that your congressional representative hear from you. If they are in that conference committee, they know, well, actually, this is something I shouldn't trade away because I'm yeah. going to have a lot of constituents mad at me. And the timeline is such that they're supposed to be September 30th. They're supposed to have a farm bill agreed on by September 30th. The, uh, the, all the legislators just left for the August recess. So they're going to be gone pretty much for most of the next month. So there's no way that it's likely to happen by the end of September, but significantly, neither chamber has even circulated a, a draft of the farm bill yet. So that's why the timing is so important. That's going to be all happening in September. So literally, as soon as you hear this, immediately call, especially your local congressional house member and Senate member, just tell them, you know, do everything they can to keep this from being put into the farm bill. That way, if it's not in the farm bill in the first place, we don't even have to worry about the conference committee. If we can just keep it from being included in the first place, that is a, a huge victory. And we can kind of guarantee you, they can't really add anything new in conference committee. So the whole point is just to keep it out of the farm bill in the first place. So more than likely, you know, the farm bill is going to, has to get passed before the end of December when the actual funding runs out. But yeah, the, the big push is going to be in September, just everyone doing everything they can to just keep it out of the farm bill in the first place. All right. I'm on it. Thank you so much. I've kept you for forever, but it's really been very enlightening. I did get lost a couple of times, but because it's complicated stuff, but it's so, so important. Thanks for enlightening us about it. Of course. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety surprising. Our first story is from what Agnet and it feels like it was written just for me and for you as well. How to kill poultry production with regulations. Well, we definitely have to read this and find out how. This is by one Benjamin Ruiz, and he's actually talking about what's going on in Spain, Spain specifically, but because of new animal welfare standards in the EU, uh, which are in process. He doesn't tell us what these new animal welfare standards are that's still to come, but uh, he's he's really upset about the fact that they're happening at all because he can imagine that they're going to be really bad. For him, not for the chickens. With my current disillusion with politicians, uh, you know, I know exactly how you feel, Benjamin. Lawmakers included, I feel that personal interests dictate decisions and not precisely common well-being and common sense. Actually, I personally feel like the ag industry dictates an awful lot of decisions, but maybe that's just me. And he's talking about the new European animal welfare standards. They will come into effect soon. And the Catalonian Poultry Producers Federation is very upset. Uh, and they just feel like, you know, they've been doing so much that, that they're once again being pressured to invest and implement changes. And they've shown so much resilience over the past few years with the pandemic, with bird flu, with high prices. You know, are they the ones, like, have they shown resilience or have they caused these problems? It's interesting how 
people see things quite differently. They see themselves as the victims, not the cause. Uh, According to Benjamin, quote, the new regulations, no specifics mentioned, are requiring heavy changes, large investments that will have caused decreased production for some of the largest animal proteins consumed in Spain, chicken and eggs. Well, yay. This is good news, isn't it? What do lawmakers think the general public will be eating? He asks. I I could make a few suggestions. Uh, He goes on to say, producers are not against animal welfare. Let me say it again. Animals not well taken care of do not produce. Therefore, they would have no business. Okay, that's what he has to say. This is what I have to say. Let me say it again. This is a lie. (laughs) This is not true. Sadly, for these poor, benighted animals, you can treat them absolutely horrifically and they still make money for you. Oh, he goes on to say, why is the poultry industry taking the rap for bad animal welfare? <laughs> I just can't imagine what the answer, why would that be that they would be taking the rap for bad animal welfare? I mean, like it is their companies and their chickens and they are the ones doing it. So that would seem to explain why they're taking the rap for it. Are lawmakers thinking about human well-being with no poultry proteins or very expensive ones? I'll tell you, human well-being would be well-served with no poultry proteins. Finally, he asks, are they thinking about the reviled countryside, the animal ag entrepreneurs, the so-called empty Spain? (sighs) Yeah, I'm sure it's the poultry industry keeping Spain uh, from going completely under. I think it's the weather, actually, that's causing Spain the most problems at the moment. But I digress. All right, another another um, story from Europe. This is from the UK. Little hit with advertising complaint amid investigation into, quote, high welfare chicken. This is from our friends at Plant-Based News. Yeah, Little is a, it, I think it's a kind of um, low-rent uh, supermarket, you know, with low prices, bargains. I, as far as I recall, call. And according to this article, Animal Rights Organization, the Humane League UK, has submitted a complaint to the Advertising Standards Authority over Little's marketing of its chicken products. This is part of the Humane League's efforts to get companies to sign on to the better chicken commitment. And, you know, the better chicken commitment has to do with broilers, not with laying hens. I hate to call them broilers. I mean, it is what we call them, but, you know, they weren't born to be broiled. Well, I guess they were, but, you know, it's not their fault. This is came after a charity called Open Cages, which is probably affiliated in somewhere, conducted an undercover investigation and found chickens who were sick and debilitated. Some of them were crushed to death by vehicles. And of course, little cut ties with the supplier. That's what they always do. As soon as an animal rights organization exposes uh, one of their suppliers, they say, oh, that's terrible. We had no idea. So this is what they thought, apparently, and put on their website and advertised in spite of the fact that the Humane League didn't have any trouble finding out what was happening at the supplier. But apparently it was too hard for Little to find out, uh, even though it is its own supplier. says that the birds are reared with care. And this, as the Humane League pointed out, how can this be true when an investigation shows birds crushed under the wheels of vehicles and left to suffer from the deformities and illnesses of fast growth? The article goes on to talk a little bit about Franken chickens, which are these, you know, the fast growing quote unquote broilers. And 
they are, have been bred to grow slaughter weight. And by slaughter weight, I mean hugely oversized. They are Franken chickens indeed, and they grow to that weight in six weeks. And they suffer horrifically because of this. And according to this article, they make up around 90% of the 1 billion chickens killed for meat in the UK. Uh, but according to Little on its, on its website, its chickens are reared with care by British or Scottish farmers on a balanced diet in barns with natural daylight and bales. I, they like to appeal to this idea that, you know, like if you're British or Scottish, you couldn't do anything, you, you, you must be doing a good job. Like It also mentioned the fact Little uses images of brown free-range egg-laying birds who have loads and loads of space. So those are the pictures they're putting out. And these, of course, you know, chickens raised for meat, quote-unquote broilers, are not brown. They are always white. In fact, they are kept in barns, according to this article, where there may be as many as 17 birds for every square meter of space. Imagine that. Um, A worker was heard saying the ammonia is just burning their feet all the time. But according to Little, birds live in safe, comfortable housing with natural daylight, bales purchased in pecking objects. You know, the bullshit continues. And in particular, uh, they're pointing out, and I think this is really valid, the use of those photos of free-range laying hens. So they're not even normal, like, horrible conditions for laying hens. They take these pictures of, you know, these uh, hens of different breeds being raised under completely different circumstances. And then they pretend that, you know, they're not lying. All right, our final story is we're back in the USA. Regulating legacy facilities and equipment out of existence. This is from the Legally Speaking column by Sean Stevens. And particularly if you've seen the recent show on Netflix called Poisoned, which is talking about food poisoning and the role of the meat and poultry industry in spreading it, of course. This is a particularly horrifying column. So I'm going to read, I'm, I'm going to tell you a lot about it. He starts out by saying, I often describe FDA's current posture toward finding pathogens in food facilities as a three strikes and you're out approach. Already, this sounds a problem. So after they, they find problems three times, like what about the people who die as a result of the problems they found the first two times? But after they find problems three times, and we'll see what they mean by you're out. So the agency is increasingly conducting swabathons. It sounds like this is like a crazy, crazy thing called a swab. They go in and they swab things and see if there's germs on them. The regulators are often well-trained and highly motivated to search in the most difficult to clean and sanitize locations in food facilities, thus maximizing the potential for finding organisms of concern. Well, I would hope so. <laughs> like, Isn't that what they're there for? Oh, and then he's talking about whole genome sequencing, which means that they can kind of really track down the um, genetic signature of pathogens. Now, I think that this could be hugely important for being able to sue people when people do get sick. But that's not what he's talking about because, because he's talking about the fact that they can now tell whether it's a new strain of salmonella or whether they just didn't clean up the old strain, which they were already told about. If, while conducting its swabathon activities, FDA finds the same strain of pathogenic listeria or salmonella in a food facility on three or more occasions, the agency will likely conclude that the pathogen is persistent. Uh, really? <laughs> well, well, imagine how they could come to that conclusion. 
and that the food company's cleaning and sanitation programs are not effective. Uh, well, yeah, that's what I would conclude. And, you know, we have to remember, too, that, that it's not all chicken products. It's only some chicken products that they're checking for salmonella. Uh, but this article doesn't go into that, so I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't want to talk through my hat. He goes on to say that the agency will likely also issue on the third strike. All right, so now we've I've already said they get three three chances. So on the third strike, a warning letter is sent. <laughs> They're not shut down after the third strike. They get a warning letter, and there's a threat to pull its registration if the strain is not eliminated. Like, why don't they do that on the first one? In many instances, regardless of the true merits of the underlying warning letter, and I really have trouble finding any reason to believe that there wouldn't be merit to it. He goes on to say, it can be the equivalent of a death sentence for the company as its customers may respond by sending their business elsewhere. Gee, imagine that. (laughs) Why would they not? Why would they not? There have been like three findings of, of, of food poisoning. All right, he goes on to say that FDA's policy has caused difficulty for many companies. Many companies, and this is my favorite uh, line, operating in legacy facilities with legacy equipment. I would say that we substitute the words out-of-date facilities with out-of-date equipment. Legacy. It sounds like it belonged to your grandmother. Oh, and according to him, much of the food produced in the U.S. today is manufactured using equipment that was designed and built long before the presence of pathogens became a major focus in ready-to-eat food production. The ready-to-eat segment is the place that they're really looking for salmonella. So they're using old equipment, and it was built a long time ago. Like, isn't the answer that they need to update their equipment? And he said they can't really be disassembled, cleaned, and sanitized. Oh, my God. (laughs) Is this, isn't this what you would call an admission? He's trying to present it as a defense, but it seems like it's an admission that it may actually prove in many cases to be nearly impossible for those facilities to completely eradicate re- resident strains without investing millions of dollars in new equipment and facility improvements. If the doll, if they don't have the money, they'll go out of business. Well, hello, like this is the craziest article. All right, if you have to spend millions of dollars to keep people from getting food poisoning from your out-of-date equipment, then you have to spend millions of dollars. That's known as the cost of doing business. But he thinks it won't be any real effect on food safety because these strains may actually be controlled and, and they might be kept away from the food. Even though they're found in the facility, maybe they're not getting into the food is basically the gist of what he's saying. Uh, I'll I'll give you the direct quote so I don't misrepresent him. And this may also be true without any real effect on food safety if the resident strains are actually being controlled in critical areas and thus being kept away from the food being produced. So it's in the facility, but you know, so what? I wonder whether the cost of doing so in some cases may be greater than the ultimate benefit. Well, what what is the ultimate benefit we're talking about here? We're talking about chicken companies being able to stay in business. Uh, who cares? And people uh, not getting sick. Uh, that seems like a really, really good outcome. Oh, these people. I, honestly. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. 
or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a Flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the Flock section, so do consider that when you're considering joining the Flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a Flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine, and you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous Flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic Our Hen House Brass Pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.